An enemy who will scatter you, Nineveh, has advanced against you. Guard the rampart. Watch the road. Prepare yourselves for battle. Muster your mighty strength. For Yahweh is about to restore the majesty of Jacob, as well as the majesty of Israel, though their enemies have plundered them and have destroyed their fields. Thus has been revealed to Nahum the Elkishite, in Nahum chapter 2 and the first two verses. From Nahum chapter 1 and verse 1, we read that Nahum the Elkishite has been given oracles about Nineveh. He's a prophet of Judah, uh, prophesying somewhere between 663 and 612 B.C. And Nineveh is the most prominent city of the Assyrians. It's the global metropolis of the 7th century B.C. Now Assyria had ended the kingdom of Israel and exiled its inhabitants and had devastated and oppressed Judah. And Nahum had sung a psalm praising Yahweh, zealous and avenging, and he prophesied the defeat and downfall of Nineveh, and imagined how this good news would be proclaimed in Judah. And now he's going to expand upon this decree and condemnation of Yahweh. So Nahum is speaking with this prophetic imagination, and he's describing the preparations of the Assyrian army in Nineveh would be making when the enemy would come close at hand. And in the defeat and devastation of Nineveh and Assyria, Nahum is expecting Yahweh to restore the majesty of Jacob and Israel, despite their previous humiliation. Judah is a part of Israel and Jacob, and would receive some vindication from their humiliation. But when the prophets talk about Israel and Jacob, they're primarily talking about the lost ten tribes, or the ten tribes of the northern kingdom of Israel, which at this time had uh, almost fully assimilated into the Assyrian uh, milieu. And in 2 Kings 17, verse 23, uh, they, we hear about all of these things. We would love to have some evidence that, yes, they were excluded from the devastation to come or would be vindicated, but it's in vain. Uh, we have no evidence that there was any kind of leniency or clemency offered to Israelite descendants in Assyria, and all the evidence we do have suggests that they had by this time assimilated into that Assyrian population, having become Assyrian and therefore suffered the fate. Of the Assyrians. Now you can argue that Nahum has the remnant of Israel and Judah in mind, because there would have been some who would have fled down south when all of these things were taking place in the uh, middle of the eighth century. But sometimes that some seems like bending interpretation to fit a desired result. Nahum will continue. The shields of his warriors are dyed red. The mighty soldiers are dressed in scarlet garments. The chariots are in flashing metal fittings on the day of battle. The soldiers brandish their spears. The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush back and forth in the broad plazas. They look like lightning bolts. They dash here and there like flashes of lightning. The commander orders his officers. They stumble as they advance. They rush to the city wall, and they set up the covered siege tower. The sluice gates are opened. The royal palace is deluged and dissolves. So Nahum is now envisioning the invading and besieging army. The red-dyed shields and garments were part of psychological warfare. Uh, presumably the army had already come from the slaughter of others. Now the battle scene that Nahum imagines is generally unexceptional. It reflects the kind of battles that were taking place continually at this time. You have lines of infantry on walls coming up against the walls. Chariots in the city trying to provide soldiers and materiel wherever necessary. Uh, the covered siege tower is not a besieging uh, thing as much as trying to attack the besiegers. Uh, it is designed to take out the towers that the besieging army would be raising up to try to breach the walls. Now, the profound irony that's not going to escape either Nahum or Judah, and wouldn't escape the Assyrians either, and shouldn't escape us, 
is that throughout this time, it's the Assyrians who are the ones generally doing the psychological warfare, uh, the besieging, and it's their panicked enemies who are the ones riding the chariots in the city and setting up the covered siege tower, and generally in vain. And now, of course, the situation has been reversed. But what is somewhat extraordinary is Nahum's observation about the Seleuce Gate, and it reflects some powerful prophetic insights or a very detailed understanding of Nineveh's situation and defenses. Because Nineveh was built at the confluence of the Tigris and Khosr rivers, and the Khosr River flowed right through the middle of the city as well as the smaller tributary that Tabiltu. Now the Assyrians had built dams and sluice gates in order to manage the Khosr and Tabiltu rivers, and the Tabiltu especially would not be easily managed and undermine the palace foundations, and so Sennacherib, king of Assyria, had to reroute it outside of the city, and he also set up a dam on the Khosr river and created a reservoir outside the city. We have two Greek commentators, Diodorus and Xenophon, and they report how there had been significant rainfall in that area in the years leading up to 612. And there was a breach in the reservoir. And that breach in the reservoir opened up a hole of two miles in the Assyrian walls of Nineveh, which the Medes and Chaldeans were able to exploit in order to capture the city. Now, since some stories would suggest that Babylon would eventually fall to the Persians after Cyrus temporarily rerouted the Euphrates River, which went through the middle of the city and therefore marched through on the riverbed, it might well have been understood by many how the rivers and the reservoir would represent Nineveh's most easily exploited weakness. But it's not just the details given by Nahum, but also how it quote unquote, just so happened that there was a lot of rainfall and the Assyrian earthworks were compromised uh, is extraordinary. We might just look at, oh, it happened to rain. But the Israelites and others would not have been fooled. They would have known who was really behind all of this. Nahum continues. Nineveh is taken into exile and led away. Her slave girls moan like doves while they beat their breasts. Nineveh is like a pool of water throughout her days, but now her people are running away. She cries out, stop, stop, but no one turns back. Her conquerors cry out, plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There is no end to the treasure, riches of every kind of precious thing. Destruction, devastation, and desolation. Hearts faint, knees tremble, every stomach churns, all their faces have turned pale. In verses 7 through 10. So Nahum's now imagining the effects of Nineveh's fall and what her exile would look like. Now the fact that he points out the lament of slave girls can be seen as somewhat cruel. Because we'd understand observations of how the Assyrian women themselves would moan and mourn because they would be led into slavery. But these slave girls already were led into slavery. These were the women whom the Assyrians had seized as war prices when they fought with Egypt, Elam, or Artu, or the descendants of the slaves they seized as war prices from their exploits in Syria and Israel. These slave girls had already known disruption, and now those who had been enslaved the Assyrians would now be enslaved to Medes or Chaldeans. Nineveh, as a pool of water, is not a metaphor aphorism as much as a reflection of its large number of artificial pools, lakes, and gardens. So that it was known for being this very lush territory. The idea of this illustration is that it's a kind of place that is attractive, the kind of place people want to come to, uh, a destination, right? But now everyone's trying to run away. Everybody's trying to escape. And the city cries out for people to come back to it, but everybody's running away because its hour of devastation has come. We can understand why there would be this move to seize plunder, because the accumulated wealth of 200 years of successful raids and invasions, the wealth of Egypt, the Levant, Eastern Asia Minor, Mesopotamia, were now all available for plundering, and that destruction would be epic. In fact, we have a lot of information about Mesopotamian history, religion, and so on and so forth. 
the Epic of Gilgamesh, the story of Enuma Elish, and a bunch of other texts is because Ashurbanipal, king of Assyria, had just recently uh, developed and built the largest library which was known and seen in the Mesopotamian world in order to demonstrate his grandeur and power and greatness, and also because he had significant interest in uh, such information and such knowledge. And it was all, of course, written on these clay tablets in cuneiform, and in the sacking of the city and his burning, it all uh, hardened, and it all was preserved to be uh, dug up by archaeologists in the 19th and 20th centuries. So Nahum considered the psychological toll on the Ninevites, because what had been unthinkable, that what they had done unto others had now been done unto them, and thus... Uh, there are faint hearts, trembling knees, churning stomachs. Their faces have turned pale. They just can't believe it. They cannot imagine it. But everything they have done has now been done unto them. Nahum concludes what we call chapter 2, uh, in verse 11 through 13, with a taunt. Where now is the den of the lions and the feeding place of the young lions, where the lion, lioness, and lion cub once prowled and no one disturbed them? The lion tore apart as much prey as his cubs needed and strangled prey for his lionesses. He filled his lairs with prey and his dens with torn flesh. I am against you, declares Yahweh of heaven's armies. I will burn your chariots with fire. The sword will devour your young lions. You will no longer prey upon the land. The voices of your messengers will no longer be heard. So what had become of that den of lions? Lions are prevalent in the ancient Near East, and as they are reckoned as kings of the savannah in Africa, so there's a strong association between lions, kingship, and the exercise of power here even in Asia Minor. Nineveh, as a den of lions, thus is the home seat of that power. Their territory is what they controlled, and none dared disturb or challenge them, and the prey would be the kingdoms and nations around Assyria whose people and wealth now adorn Nineveh. But what had become of it? Well, the opposition of Yahweh Sabaoth, Yahweh of heaven's army, Yahweh of hosts, that uh, Nahum very deliberately evokes because he's trying to speak of the god of armies and how he is going to uh, devastate the Assyrians militarily. Their chariots would indeed burn. Their ruling house, its army, would be executed. Nineveh and Assyria would never again spoil and exploit its neighbors, its uh, ambassadors and people there to collect tribute and taxes and things would no longer be seen ever again. And in this way, Nahum envisions Nineveh's downfall. So what should we say about what Nahum has to say here in this cha second chapter? We are familiar with the golden rule in Matthew 7, verse 12. As you would have others do unto you, you should do unto them. But even in the New Testament, we often get flavors of how judgment will work. That as you did unto others, it will be done unto you. This is a principle we know as just deserts uh, here in, uh, in English. We see that in Romans 2, 5 through 11, James 2, 12 through 13, and so on and so forth. Because it is quite challenging to not enjoy some schadenfreude in the sublimity of a truly just desert situation, in which a person is made to suffer exactly that which they had caused others to suffer, or fell into a trap they had laid for others. Now the prophets of, in general will display Yahweh's judgments as uh, just deserts. Uh, it is not as if Yahweh is being uniquely or especially horrible or violent toward a given group of people, because it's often being done to them as they had done to others. We are tempted in our uh, time today to maybe start the cameras rolling with what God is doing to Nineveh and Assyria, and we could say how horrible, how terrible. But uh, 
it's unmistakable for anybody who hears this message what's underneath it. Because to this day, the armies of the Neo-Syrian Empire maintain a reputation for being particularly gruesome and violent. And the reason they have this reputation is some of the things they claim to say and do, that's even been recorded in the pages of scripture, and because they were very open and willing to display what they were doing on the various scenes of their artwork in their uh, palaces in Nineveh and Ashur and other places. Now, if you ask historians of the ancient Near Eastern world, they'll tell you that the Neo-Babylonians were actually much more brutal, much more awful, and the Judahites would fully be able to attest to that based on what's going to happen to them in a few years. But what is Nahum envisioning? That which the Neo-Babylonians and Medes would visit upon Nineveh and the Assyrians. Both groups would maintain a hot hatred of the Assyrians because the Assyrians had imposed upon them all kinds of burdens and oppression and exploitation over the past 200 years. And they gave full vent to that in 612. Uh, they could have not done it the way they did. They did what they did for a reason. And Yahweh of Heaven's army still reigns in heaven. He still gives just desserts to those many nations. And we should definitely be concerned about that because we Americans especially will presume naive innocence in acting as if we are only this force of good and that we are uh, incapable of, of terrible evil. But there are a whole lot of forces that have acted in our name in many places that have led to a lot of abuse, exploitation, oppressing, and suffering. We do not want to suffer just desserts. We do not want to be in the same situation. And therefore, we do well to continue to pray for grace and mercy from Yahweh of Heaven's armies and repent of our sins, lest we also suffer what we have caused others to suffer. In 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 19, Peter testifies that we possess the prophetic word as an altogether reliable thing. We do well. We pay attention to this as we would to a light shining in a murky place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in our hearts. Peter maintains a lot of confidence in the prophetic message. Now, there are a lot of ways in which this assurance can be overemphasized or distorted, but Peter's not wrong. Nahum is really a great demonstration of this premise. Because few prophets prove as prescient as Nahum, and as quickly, and to an extent that would be hardly imaginable in Nahum's day. We have to remember, Assyria had been a going concern for 2,000 years by the time Nahum prophesied. As is most likely that Nahum prophesied in the days of Ashurbanipal, king of Assyria, so some, on the early end of that, 663-631, uh, there was little, if any, basis on the gr ground to expect the imminent destruction of the Neo-Syrian Empire. It was at its height of its power and influence under Ashurbanipal, the devastator of both uh, Thebes and Egypt and Elam, and what would have considered a genocidal campaign. He built the largest empire in the largest city with the largest library ever known to that time. But even if Nahum prophesied in the days immediately after Ashurbanipal, sometime between 631 and 615, even if it's right up to when there are Chaldean and Median armies surrounding Nineveh, Assyrian history is full of times when weaker kings came after stronger kings. The unbroken line of strong kings from Tiglath-Pileser III to Ashurbanipal was the exception in the Assyrian history. And therefore, even if there had been momentary weakness on the throne, there would be no historical basis on which to assume or expect it would not lead, assuming that it would lead to the complete devastation and extermination of the Neo-Syrian Empire. They would have just expected it to be another time in which other powers could consolidate themselves until another strong king arose in Assyria. And even if it were seen that Nineveh would be destroyed, it's worth pointing out, the Assyrians destroyed Babylon. They razed it to the ground today as Sennacherib. Sarhaddon rebuilt it. Plenty of times cities are sacked in the ancient world. They're often rebuilt. 
of course, the time comes when they are no longer rebuilt. Right. Uh, but that's not something that you're going to see uh, clearly based upon historical analogs. It's only going to be obvious when it's already happened and it's not rebuilt or it does not regain its prominence. And so we have every reason to have the confidence that Peter does in Nahum. Now, what Nahum is writing is not his private interpretation based upon uh, the proverbial reading of the tea leaves pontificating on the end of Assyria. Because what Nahum was saying and writing went well beyond anything anyone in the middle of the 7th century could have expected based on all historical trends. In fact, no one, not even the Chaldean Babylonians or Medians who brought down Assyria, could have imagined or expected the complete, total, and final victory over Assyria and its elimination as a going concern for the rest of time. Now, it actually doesn't turn out as great for Judah as we might have imagined. They may have received it as good news, but the convulsions among the major powers of the age, which itself talks about and to testifies to the fact this was somewhat unexpected, would lead to the death of Josiah, the exile of Jehoahaz, and ultimately the destruction of Jerusalem. And that's the importance and power of Nahum's prophetic witness. He spoke of the coming judgment of Yahweh against the Assyrians that was so thorough and unexpected it would cause convulsions throughout the ancient Near Eastern world, and all within decades. And yet it had all been spoken in advance by Yahweh through Nahum, his prophet. Assyria was not the first major world power whose fallen end seemed improbable or impossible to imagine, and it would not be the last. And that's why we do well to heed the lessons of Nahum's burden regarding Nineveh and be found repentant and faithful before Yahweh of heaven's armies, fully entrusting ourselves to him, relying on the word which he has spoken through his servants, the prophets. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Ethan with the Venice Church of Christ. We are a non-denominational church of Christians seeking to make fellow disciples in Los Angeles. We'd love to be of some kind of encouragement or service to you. If you have any questions or comments about what we've discussed from Nahum chapter 2. Please let us know in the comments. Subscribe to us where you found us. If we can have any further service, please reach out to us at benefitofchrist.org. You can also find us on all kinds of various social media, Blue Sky, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, threads, and so on. We again thank you, and may the Lord bless and keep you until we're able to meet again.